We're going to talk today about hearing. I believe that's what we'll get to. Um, But in order to hear, we have to be prepared to hear. Something has to get our attention. Maybe some of you out this morning, that we've got to get your attention. <laughs> so if we had a loud noise go off, that would get your attention. Something that calls us and wakes us up and realizes, oh, I need to listen to this. And, and that's why John the Baptist came. He's called a forerunner. And he came and he came to prepare the hearts of the people so that they could receive the Savior when he came in Jesus Christ. And John's message was one of repentance. It was to wake them up so that they could see where they were so that they could receive a gift that God has for them. And God still works that same way today. And during this time of fasting and prayer that we had several weeks ago, uh, by the way, I want to make a comment about that, something that I really, really the Lord has shown me about it. The reason, and I'm still getting testimony, so if you have a testimony of something that's happened to you or someone else, please let us know. Uh, please give us, send us an email or call the office and let us know because we want to put them together. And I've heard several of them have come to my attention. And, and I, I believe, and we're going to see more, I believe it's because what happened during those three days is Faith Christian Center came together of one accord. I'm reading in the book of Acts where they were together of one accord. One accord didn't mean they agreed on everything. We never will. As long as we are still individuals, we're not going to, we don't always see everything the same way. It doesn't mean we literally all said the same words, but we came together, and it may not have been physically here, but we came together as a church for a purpose, one purpose. And when we get together in that kind of unity, God's able to move. It's like, it's like when the slots all line up correctly. Something, have you ever put together something that some engineer made? It may not have been an engineer. I remember one late one Christmas Eve, Putting together, remember the big wheels, those plastic things? Whoever made this thing was sadistic. <laughs> because about two in the morning, I'm trying to get this bolt that's supposed to go through hole A into hole B, and there was no way they were going to line up. Because hole B was about half an inch off of hole A. And you're trying to get this thing in there, and you know, finally had to drill a hole to get it through. But see, that's where we're like, if we're not in agreement... God's trying to get something through or done, and he's, the holes don't line. We're not in together of one accord. But when we're together of one accord, it's when all the holes line up. It's so easy to just be able to put that bolt through, and then the thing is strong together. And so that's what happened then, and that's why, and I believe we're going to see more and more of that. And so that's why these things have begun to happen. I've, found, I've had more revelation coming. I don't mean, you know strange things. I mean answers to, answers to questions and things coming to me than I have in a long time and I know it's because of that time that we've had together in prayer and fasting. And you expect to see that in your life. And so, so uh, it's a time of preparing. And, and during that time God took me and I really couldn't get away from Ezekiel 37. I'm saying, what is this all about? Because it was not the vision, and the Lord showed me. No, but we have to be prepared to receive the vision. In order to do that, we have to be able to know where we are. So much of the time, we want to get on with things but without being willing to face where we, where we are right now. But see, God's a God of truth. He comes to where you are now. And some, if we're trying to pretend we're somewhere we're not, kind of like in that song, we're trying to pretend we're somewhere we're not, God's not where you're pretending you are. God's meeting wants to meet you where you are. So we have to be willing to see, all right, God, show me where I really am. And understand when you get to that place, God's not going to say, oh, oh my goodness, look where they are, because he's the one trying to get us to see it. We're the, in fact, usually the people around us know where we are. It's we're the last ones to see it, because we don't want to face it. God's but, 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 revival, which is really what we're talking about, always begins with the other stuff getting stripped away and facing where we really are. And this is really what Ezekiel 37 is about to us. We talked last week, we started in in Proverbs 29, verse 22, which says in the King James, without a vision the people perish. But and, 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 and businesses have taken that principle, whether they knew that's where it came from or not, and in in most successful business have a vision. They have a mission statement. They have a purpose that the, that the employees know what it is. It, it gives them, again, focus. It gives them unity of why they're doing why they're doing. And I shared the story of, of a guy that, that I read about who, a man that, that went to, was asking just a, a maintenance person, changing a light bulb in the, in the, in the um, uh, uh, 
foyer of a, of a, of a well-known hotel and saying, why, why do you do that? And the mission statement came out. He understood why he changed light bulbs. So it wasn't just a job for him. It was, it was a purpose-driven function. And we all have a purpose. And it's, that's what it should drive us and motivate us for what we do. But the words in Proverbs 29 actually are broader than that. What they actually say is without a prophetic revelation, the people are unrestrained. That means there's no limits put on them. They're doing what they want to do. It doesn't mean they're bad people. That just means there's no, nothing bringing them together. There's nothing that, that causes them to focus together. And the words prophetic revelation doesn't mean that you have to have a prophet standing in front of you saying, thus saith the Lord. Prophetic means it comes, it's a word come from God. And it's by revelation. It's not something we gained by studying books on how do you organize a church. There are lots of programs out there, lots of seminars pastors go to, church growth seminars, and they may be fine, but they come up with patterns that they've taken from the world and used to grow churches. But my Bible tells me that Jesus says, I will grow my church. I will do it. See, it's His church. It's His body. And it's His purpose. And that's where our, my heart is. That's where our heart is set on here at Faith Christian Center. We may adopt things from others, but it's always to carry out His purpose. So we need to hear from God. We need a word from God because when you have the word from God, now that begins to folk bring us together. And what we have is, is instead, we have restraint now because we have a purpose. When you have a clearly identified purpose, it helps you make decisions. There may be, Paul says, there are lots of good things I could do, but I stopped doing them because they're not carrying out the purpose for which I came. And Paul knew what his call was. He knew what his purpose was. We know that because when he came to the end of his life, and, and we see that in 2 Timothy, writing to, the, to the, Paul writing to his, his son in the faith, Timothy, he said, I've run my course, I've finished my race. Which means he had to know what his course was. He had to know what his lane was he was running in the race in. And he had to know what it, that he was finished it. He didn't just mean I'm finished my life. I've done what I was sent here to do. So he had to know what that was. And that became the focus of his life. It's what caused him to decide what he would do and what he wouldn't do. And that's what we need desperately. That's what the church needs. Not just here, but throughout much of the United States. We need a vision from God. Why we're here. Because without that, we're going to end up acting and talking just like the world. And that's pretty much what's happened in the church today. We'll share a little bit more of that, I believe, today as we get into this. All right. Ezekiel 37. That's kind of what we began to cover last week. All right. Start in verse 1. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord. So this is a vision Ezekiel's having. And we shared last week some of the background to this story, and I'm not going to go back into that today. And he set me down in the midst of a valley, and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. So the vision here, what God is taking Ezekiel out to see, is a valley of dry bones. Not skeletons, bones. There were very many, they're scattered, and they're dry. Now, you may be reading through this and listening to me say, yeah, but that's talking about Israel. Yes, it is initially, but the prophecy often has several layers of meaning. One was spoken directly to that generation, a message to that generation. But many of those have a messianic theme, which means it's also foretelling the coming of Christ and the work of Christ. But if you look back in the chapters before, you'll see there are verses that refer to the church, basically. It doesn't have the name of the church in there, but what it's talking about is, the, is in ver- chapter 36, talks about the, the, the new birth. The verse I quoted in prayer earlier. Said, God said, I will take your heart of stone out and put on you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit in you. That's talking about the new birth. And so, so th- there is a, there's a level of meaning here where it's talking to the church. And in any event... If the shoe fits, wear it. So if it describes us, then we need to listen to what he's saying. So he takes him out to this valley, and there's some significant things. And I'm not going to spend the same time on it last week, but I want to bring it together because it's so important. Where he takes him out is significant. It's a valley. A valley is usually where things didn't happen, happened that were not necessarily good. God met people on the top of mountains, generally not in valleys. Valleys usually where they got in trouble. 
because they weren't in God's presence. We talked last week about, about the children of Israel. While Moses is up on the mountain talking to God, the children of Israel down in the valley with Aaron forming a molten calf, a golden calf of idolatry to break the first commandment God's giving Moses on the mountain. There are defeats that happen down in the valley. And so, uh, and, and, and the, you know, Psalm 23, though I go through the valley of the shadow of death. So valley implies a low place. A dry place, not a place of revelation, not a place of meeting God. That's what it implies. So this is a low place. It's not a spiritually high place. Second thing is it's full of bones, not skeletons, bones. So uh, 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 bones are former skeletons where the pieces have been scattered all over the place. They're there, but they're not connected where they need to be connected. We talked about there are many people in church, and I'm not just talking about Faith Christian Center this morning. There are many people in church, but they're not connected where they're supposed to be connected by God. They're just here. And because they're not connected where God's connected, they're, doing, they're making their own connections. They're doing what they want to do. And again, not that we're bad people, not that our intentions are wrong, but it's not just being good people with good intentions, it's being obedient to the call of God. That's what matters. Because there are a lot of people doing good things, but it's not what God's called them to do. And so that's part of what this picture is. Another thing about these bones is because they're scattered, there's no order to it. We don't like order, unless it's our order. Because order implies I'm told to go where, I'm, where I don't necessarily want to be and do something I don't... I'm told by somebody to do something that I don't necessarily want to do. It means there's a place assigned for me, and I may not want to be in that place. I'd rather be somewhere else. But God is a God of order. You would not be here today if God were not a God of order, because that thing you came in, your earth suit, your body, is very orderly. It may not be as orderly as you'd like it to be, but it is functioning in an order. All the parts are basically doing what they're supposed to do, or you would not be healthy. When they're not doing what they're supposed to do, when one of them's not functioning right, that's called disease or illness. And you go get it fixed so that it starts functioning the way it's supposed to function. Well, we are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And if we are not performing our function and being in the position and the order God's called us to be in, then His body is ill. And it's diseased. And it's not able to carry out the purpose of the head. And that's what these bones imply. First of all, order. And one of the things God's been talking to me about. See, what this all amounts to, this whole symbolic thing of Ezekiel 37, is revival. The presence of God manifesting. But all throughout the Bible, it's very clear that the presence of God could not manifest until things got in order. In order both in terms of people, things being where they're supposed to be, but also our lives being in order, lined up with what He requires of us. You know God does require things of us. Oh, but we're saved. God loves us. We live in an age of grace. Yes, we do. But God's still a God of order. God's still a God of righteousness. God's still a God of holiness. God's still a God of justice. God's still a God of truth. He hasn't changed His nature. He didn't put His nature and character aside when this age of grace came about. And by the way, you understand, it's an age of grace. It's a parenthesis. You know what I mean by that? Ever go along reading something and then you hit a parenthesis? That means there's something discussed in there that doesn't exist outside of it. If you read the Old Testament, that's outside the age of grace. And aren't you glad when you read the Old Testament that the New Testament is the age of grace? Because the way they handled a lot of things in the Old Testament is they took them outside the city and they stoned them to death. For things that we say, oh, that's okay, God understands. They were stoned to death at God's commandment. But see, don't forget that the age of grace we are in has an end also. There's the other end of the parenthesis. God's nature and character has not changed. It's just that we're in a time 
period where God's providing grace so that He can reach everyone that can be reached. That's why Peter says some very difficult things, especially in 2 Peter. Talking about, you know, at the end, he says, don't, don't, don't just think because, that because things have gone on the way they are that they're going to go on that way forever. Jesus warns us about that in Matthew 24 and 25. And so that's part of what we need to awaken to. We're in a period of grace. And that's not just grace for us. It's God's grace offered to whoever needs to be saved. And this provide us the opportunity to be part of His body, to do what needs to be done in that parenthesis. But it is going to come to an end. It is going to come to an end. Because God's character and nature has not changed. And so He is still a God of righteousness. He's still a God of holiness. still a God of order. And so order also requires that our lives line up with what He requires. And that's what this is also talking about. Not just the condition of the church, but the condition of our own personal lives. So, well, I'm doing what I need to do. Yeah, but am I, is, is my heart where it needs to be? And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit. All right, okay. So, we've looked at the bones. We've looked at the fact that they're scattered. Now, another, fa- another aspect of the fact that they're just bones. Because they're bones, they don't have any muscle on them. They don't have any tendons to hold them together, and there's no skin on it. One of the things I was kind of praying about, God, all right, what, what, is, what does that mean? Because he's going to go on and he's going to put bones, he's going to put skin and muscle on them. What's that mean? And the Lord showed me, he says, that's maturing. So a skeleton is the basic framework for a body, but it's not alive, it can't do anything until it has muscle and tendons, and cartilage, and then ultimately skin. So without those things, that body is not mature yet. So these bones aren't even at the place of starting to be matured because they're scattered. So the beginning is to come together, to get them in the right place. Once they're in the right place, now God can begin to mature them. So at this point, these bones are scattered. They're dry which means they've dried up. The marrow is dried out of them. We talked last week, the purpose of the marrow that's inside your bones is to produce blood cells, especially red blood cells, because it's the blood cells that the the life is in the blood, Leviticus 17. Literally, your life is in your blood, your physical life. Because the hemoglobin in your blood carries the oxygen to all the... the, 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 uh, which each of your cells vitally needs oxygen in order to live and thrive and to grow. And the way that oxygen is delivered, that's the purpose of your blood system, is to take that oxygen to, to your different cells. So literally the life of your body is in the blood. It's in the blood. That's why blood sacrifices were so important. That's why Jesus shed his blood. It represents his, his life shed for us. That's the power of the blood of Jesus isn't in, the, isn't in, the, isn't in the, the physical material that came from his veins. The power is in his life given for us. That's where the power comes from. And so, so the blood, so the blood represents, represents life. And these bones, because they're dried up, don't have the ability to produce life the way a healthy bone does. And that's the condition that God takes the prophet out and shows him this vision of Israel and I believe of the church today. Okay. But there's hope. We're just beginning. There's hope. All right. Another thing I didn't see until this morning is the bones are not aware of their condition. The bones are not aware of their condition. They're just bones. They're existing. They're just there. And it takes God doing something for them to realize they're not where they're supposed to be. And the very beginning we need to see is for God to show us where we really are and whether we're where we're supposed to be, not just our position, but in terms of our spiritual health and spiritual maturity, because that's really what this is all about, is spiritual maturity. Because if we think we're well off, see, we're not comparing ourselves. Paul talks in several places in 2 Corinthians. He says, I don't compare myself by myself. 
We looked at that last week. Because if I compare myself by myself, I'm comparing myself with where I was yesterday. And I don't compare myself by you, and you shouldn't compare yourself by me. See, that's what we want to do. Then we pick out somebody that's spiritually less mature than we think we are, and we think we're doing pretty well. Well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. I'm here every Sunday. That's comparing me by somebody else. And the problem is, the Lord compares us to Him. That's His standard. So how can we do that? We're going to get there. But if you don't know that's the standard, you won't aim at it. Okay. So the bones don't realize the condition they're in. God has to do something. All right, let's move on now. That was verse 1 and 2. And he, that's God, said to me, verse 3, Son of man, can these bones live? Now, isn't that God's asking the question? I, I, I can't imagine what's going on inside of Ezekiel's mind at this point. We'll get a little bit of an indication in a minute. But he's looking at what is obviously a hopeless situation. Notice, God has to show it to him. We're talking about prophetic revelation. God has to open the prophet's eyes to see where Israel is. Because without that revelation from God, Ezekiel couldn't have seen it. And now that Ezekiel's begin to see it, God, see, God often teaches us with questions. And you understand God doesn't ask you questions to get information? Like he asked Adam in Genesis 3. Adam, where are you? It wasn't because Adam was lost and God was trying to find him. Like your child in the mall sometime, maybe. Oh my gosh, where's Johnny? Now, God knew exactly where Adam was. He was asking the question so that Adam would find out where he is. So, but Adam knew where he was. No, he didn't. He knew where he was physically. He didn't understand where he now was spiritually. Same principle. He thought he knew where he was. And so God's asking the question here. It's significant that the question comes from God, not from Ezekiel. Ezekiel's not looking out there saying, God, can these bones live? I'm imagining he's looking out there thinking it's hopeless. I mean, you cannot have a more hopeless scene than dry, scattered bones. But God's asking the question because God has a vision and a purpose He now wants to communicate to Ezekiel. And He begins to do it with a question. And He says, Son of man, can these bones live? Now look at Ezekiel's answer. Because this is a good way to answer God when He asks you questions. Or His answer was, Oh Lord God, You know. So, this is very significant, this interplay that's going on here. It's important for us to understand it, so I'm going to take a few moments to go through it. God initiates the question, shows him a hopeless situation. So now he sees where things are. And now he's talking about the future. And he says, Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel looks out and says, Is this a trick question? God, there's something you're trying to show me. That's what Ezekiel catches on. There's something you're trying to show me. So instead of blurting an answer out, out of what Ezekiel understands, he's asking God, what are you trying to show me? This is so important. We're talking about how do you receive? How do you hear? How do you grasp a vision? Because God's visions are so much bigger than our mind's ability to grasp. This is the point here. God's vision. God, I don't want to shock you, but God doesn't think in your terms. He thinks in His terms, and He's trying to teach us to think in His terms. Isaiah 55. God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your thoughts. Ways. And just in case you're confused about what the difference is, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. But that doesn't mean we can't learn to think his thoughts. That's why you were given that book. 
that's sitting in your lap right now. But you've got, here God wants to, wants to communicate a vision to the prophet. And he's starting by asking questions. The prophet's wise enough to know, wait a minute, there's something you want to show me here. That's what I need to hear. I don't need my theories. I don't need my philosophies. I don't need my understanding of what you can and cannot do with dry bones. I want to know, what are you trying to show me, God? So only you know, Lord. Only you know whether these bones can live. Because I know this much, in the natural, with our ability, and with the resources we have, there's no way those bones can live. There's no way I could begin to find where they need to be connected to each other. Even if I had an understanding of anatomy, so I knew where the tibia connected to the fibula, or whatever it is, I don't know whose tibia and whose fibula. Is that right, Doc? Okay. I don't know, what, you know, I've got to be careful here. And so, I, in my understanding, I don't know whether this is even remotely possible. But God, you're trying to show me something. Only you know whether these bones can live. Only you know whether these bones... Show me what you want to show me, God. That's what he's saying. Now, this is very interesting. And this is one of really, what really kept, part of what really kept going over me during this time of fasting and prayer. Verse 4, And again, he, God, said to me, Prophesy to these bones... Notice he didn't answer the question. The question was, can these bones live? Is this possible? And Ezekiel's answer is, only you know. What are you showing me? And God's response was not to say, yes, they can, but to tell Ezekiel to do something. Notice it's not to go take an inventory of the bones. It's to do something that doesn't seem to make sense here. Son of man, can these bones live? O Lord God, only you know. Verse 4. Again he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them. Now, let's just get real with each other. Don't listen for a moment. This is about the most foolish thing I can think of doing. You've got a prophet, a man of God, of stature in the community, standing over a valley of scattered dried bones. I won't dwell on that. We've just been talking about that. And God's answer is to speak to them. That's it. Speak to them. What could that possibly do? Now, I could understand if you would tell me to begin to go do something. I could understand if you could tell me to go bring out from the, from the, from the community the doctors, the biologists, who could identify the tibia from the fibia. Tell me to get an engineer. Tell me to get... To do something, get more learning, get more. Get, you know, this is how we think. To bring man's approach to problems into God's church. But what does God say to do? Speak to scattered, burned out, bleached old bones? What's that going to do? Well, this situation is so hopeless, and sometimes we have to get there, where there's nothing they could do. As I said, even if you could get people out there that could identify the tibia and the fibia, you don't know whose tibia goes with whose fibia. And once you've connected them, now what? Suppose you manage to get enough of a team together to connect the right bones to the right bones for the right skeleton, now you've got a bunch of skeletons there. Okay, hot shot, now what do we do? We've used all of our reasoning, all of our understanding, all of our education, and now what do we got? Now we've got a valley of skeletons. Okay, now what do we do? So God will sometimes let you run out of what you think you can do. We're talking about vision. God's trying to expand this prophet's vision to begin to see the, what God sees. That's what's going on here. 
O son of man, God answers, prophesy to these bones. Makes no sense. But all God ever requires of us, even back in Genesis 2, was that we obey Him. That's it. It's so simple. This walk is so simple. Victory, overcoming all the things that we want, carrying out God's will, God taking care of us, protecting us and blessing. It's really so simple. It's just obey Him. That's it. Let's all all go home now. All you got to do is learn to obey Him. That's it. But the rest of our life is learning, first of all, that we need to. Because somewhere down inside our flesh is this attitude, yeah, but maybe this time I can do it myself. I know last time I needed Him, but this time I'm going to do it myself. But God has shown Ezekiel the utter hopelessness of the situation. And his answer is, prophesy to these bones. Speak to them. And what am I to tell them, God? First thing, say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. I want to stop here a second. We're going to come back here. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We spent a good part of the year two years ago in this. talking about what God sees. This is God's vision for the church. We talked last week about going to the doctor's office and you're sitting there on the bench, you know, waiting for a doctor to come in and you're looking at all the pictures around you. You know, they got the, the pictures of the anatomy and things like that. And then you see a picture of a complete human you know, one with the bones and then one with the muscles and then there's a nun, you know, with the complete thing. This is God's picture of the complete. This is His goal. This is where He's getting His church. This is what He sees by faith. It's not where we are. It's what He sees. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing. But we're going to start in verse 11. And He gave some. These are gifts He gave to the church. As apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping. We've talked about that before. The building up of the, the building, the maturing, the equipping, the filling out muscle, tendon, flesh. For the filling out of the saints so they can do the work of the ministry, which is the serving of the body. For the edifying, that means the building up of the body of Christ until we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect, that means mature man, not individually mature, although we have to be individually mature, until the body becomes a full mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And here's with the, our individual part. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. That's whatever comes along to distract us. Good things, but not what God has for us to do. With every wind, by the trickery of men, by the cunning craftiness and deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into Him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does it share every bone, every tendon, every muscle does its assigned work, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of its entire self in love. That's God's goal. Now turn with me to Second Timothy. 
chapter 3. Verse 1. But know this, in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, that means proud, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now stop there a second. That sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? But today can't be any worse than when Paul lived under Roman domination. I can't believe that our society is any worse than his society was back then. Then why is it so singled out that he says in the last days be aware of this? Let's read on and I think we'll find the answer. Verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. He's talking about the church. He's not talking about what you see on CNN and, and, and CBS and all the news. He's not talking about the world. And we tend to read that and compare where we are with other generations. I used to ask that question. Well, this isn't, you know, we're not good, but we're not that so far bad that we're that bad compared to what they were in Roman times. I mean, they had, their method of entertainment was taking people out there and watch lions eating them. Now, with all this gladiator stuff on TV, we're now, we're now getting our pleasure by watching other people struggle against each other. So we may be headed in that direction, but they were ahead of us in cruelty. But he's not talking about the world. He's talking about the church. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. I guarantee you that if we were to hold a success seminar here of ten, five ways that God will bless you, change your life, and, and cause you to be the successful and, and inherit, you know, transfer millions of dollars to you, we'd pack this place out. But if we were going to have a prayer meeting, you would not have a problem finding a seat. Why? Because the church loves the things we're going to get more than we love God. The church has become enamored with wealth. And God will prosper us, but never intended to prosper us at the expense of losing us and our relationship with us. That's a byproduct of our relationship with God, not the goal of it. And I know the scriptures that talk about transferring wealth, and they're in there, but there are not a lot of them. Any, in, Charles and John Wesley, their mother wrote about them, and, and her definition of sin is very interesting. It's challenging. It's anything that distracts you from your love of God is sin. Good things, relationships can distract us from loving Him first. And by and large, that's where the church is today, at least in the United States. Let me read something to you. I'm going to read a quote out of two places. One out of a book that I mentioned to you a few weeks ago that John Brevere wrote called Relentless. And he talks about this. He says, As I look back over history, I believe that the greatest battle of the early church fathers fought was legalism. Legalism attempted to get new believers back under the law to be saved rather than trusting in God. And you'll see that in Galatians. You'll see that in, in uh, 
in, in most of Hebrews. But we fight a different battle now. I believe the greatest battle we face in the latter days is lawlessness. Lawlessness communicates a salvation without expecting a changed lifestyle. We live no differently as Christians than we were before we were saved, but now we're part of a club. We wear the label. We speak our club's language. We're no longer relentless in our trust in God and our obedience to His way. Jesus warned us that in the latter days, sin would be rampant everywhere and the love of many would grow cold, but those who endure to the end will be saved. That's in Matthew 24, 12 through 13. But wait, sin was rampant when Jesus spoke these words. What makes our day different? The shocking reality is Jesus isn't talking about society in general. He's talking about those who claim to follow him. He testifies that sin would be rampant among professing Christians in our day. Why else would he have finished his statement, but those who endure to the end shall be saved? You don't tell to an unbeliever that you must endure to the end. If you finish your race, you'll be saved. For he who isn't, he isn't even in the race. However, you would say to one already in the faith who has already started the race, if you finish. The key word Jesus uses is endure. To endure means there will be opposition, resistance, hardship in adhering to the truth, as well as temptation. We must be relentless to finish well. Sadly, I have witnessed... This is a man that travels all over the world in churches. Sadly, I have witnessed our spiritual and scriptural foundations shifting to accommodate the trends and times. It's gotten so out of control that a minister of a large church can stand before his congregation, and this has happened, and declare that he's homosexual and receive a standing ovation. Another can declare that it's no longer God's will to heal and people will believe him instead of God's word. Another can author a book declaring that all humanity is going to eventually get into heaven so that no person will burn in eternal fire and remains a rock star in Christendom. Another can challenge the virgin birth and the return of Christ and still be celebrated as a leader of the Christian faith. These are all things that have happened. More and more sad scenarios as these play out among Christians each day. Some recent surveys may help us understand this ludicrous shift. According to one national survey, only 46% of born-again Christians believe in absolute moral truth. More than 50% of evangelical Christians, that's the professed Christ as Savior, believe that people can attain heaven through avenues other than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. More than 50% of evangelical Christians believe that you can get into heaven other than by faith in Christ. Only 40%, only 40% of born-again Christians believe that Satan is a real force. How can this be? The answer is found in Paul's words to Timothy. More and more we're hearing and declaring the non-transformational gospel. That means it doesn't change you. It just makes you feel good about where you are. Its core message is unfaithful to the core doctrine of God's Word, that Jesus died for our sins to get us into heaven. Okay. There's more I could read, but I don't want to go into it anymore. I think you've got enough of a picture. Dry bones. Dry bones. Lifeless. Having a form of godliness. Without the power. It's the power that changes your life. We heard it sung this morning. The power that transforms you so you're not who you used to be. It's a process, but it's the power of God that changes us. We're dry bones. Dry bones. Lawlessness. Lawlessness. The Word of God having no authority or little authority in our lives. So I don't say, what does God's Word say? God's Word is a resource we go to. And I'm not talking about everybody. I'm talking about where the church is generally. God's words become a resource we go to to get what we need. So we have scriptures we've picked out out of context. And one of my favorite scriptures is one of the ones God has me meditating on. It's Mark 11:24. Whatsoever things you desire when you pray, believe you receive them and you shall have them. But there's another verse that follows it. 
And when you stand praying, so he's still talking about praying, forgive others. So we either see the Word of God as, as a resource that we turn to for encouragement. See, when it's your resource, it's a resource to you, then you decide what role it has in your life. You pick and choose. It's like a smorgasbord. I grew up, we were five boys. I was the oldest of them. My mother never served a smorgasbord. You ate what was on your plate. Brussels sprouts and all. There was no discussion. There was no debate about it. There was no, well, I have a right to choose what I'm going to eat because it's my body. My body was going to get knocked out. But we live in an atmosphere, in a climate, in a culture. That's okay for the world, but it's in the church. The fact that we've got to make an announcement. Do you know where your kids are? And if the Word of God's not just a resource to us, then, I should, then it's an influence in our life. We water it down so that we're the ultimate authority of what we're going to do. And God just has input into it. Dry bones. Dry bones. Dry bones. Can these bones live? Oh Lord, only you know. Can these bones live? But it's got to start out by seeing the dry bones. Seeing how God sees us. Because He's preparing us for something. Let's go back to Ezekiel 37. Verse 4 again. God said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, and this is what He said, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Notice, he didn't tell the prophet, because he's going to tell him to tell the bones what to do. But the first thing he tells the bones, these are dead dry bones. They don't have ears. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. See, if he just told the prophet to stand and tell the bones to get in order, the prophet's going to speak with his own authority, his own words. But what's going to cause these bones to move is the word of the Lord spoken over it. The same word that in Genesis chapter 1 said, let there be light, and there was light. Separated the darkness from the light. Spoke the celestial bodies into being. Hebrews 1.3 says, and they're still held in place by the word of His power. Not the power of His Word, by the Word, the expression of His power. God releases His power through words. And the only hope these dry bones have is the power of God. But it's released through words. Jesus, in the verse before the one I just quoted in Mark 11, teaching His disciples because he's just spoke to a fig tree and it withered up from its roots overnight. That's supernatural. Even if, he could, even if he could have spoken to it and it just died. If you just kill a tree one day, it's not withered up the next. It takes weeks and months for it to show up. I mean, I got this picture in my mind. They pass by one day, it's there, just no fruit on it. Jesus, all he said was, may no man eat fruit of you anymore. And just walked on. They walked past the next morning. And it's shriveled up over on the ground. Enough that it caught. You know, Jesus just kept walking. 
He, was, he knew it. He, he, he expected that to happen. Peter stops. Whoa, 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 Lord, look. The tree you cursed. Look what happened to it. So it must have been remarkable. And Jesus uses this as a teaching opportunity. He says, have faith in God. Verse 22. And then he says these key words, whosoever. So now he's not just teaching his disciples. He's teaching it's available to whosoever. The same whosoever that's in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that whosoever. The reason you're here is you became a whosoever. Whosoever means it's up to us, not up to God. He's made it available, but it's only whosoever chooses. This is the same whosoever. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be taken up and cast in the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but believes what he said shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he said. So about speaking to mountains. And I believe the reason he chose is a mountain. A mountain represents as an impossible obstacle to get out of your way. Because in our understanding, you either go over it or around it. But instead of going over and around it, he just tells it to move. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, in a messianic prophecy to Zechariah, God, by His Spirit, tells him, gives him a vision. He says, well, what am I to do? The vision was of, of vessels that represented the Holy Spirit as anointing. And he says, it's not by might, that's your ability, nor by power, your power, that this mountain shall be removed, this obstacle that was in your way. But by my Spirit says the Lord. All right, the Spirit of God's going to do it. But then he says, speak to the mountain and speak, say grace, grace to the mountain. So God's pattern is when there are obstacles, we're to speak, but it's not your words. It's the word of the Lord to the situation. All right. But just because the word of the Lord is spoken doesn't mean we hear it. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, and we will get into this but not finish it today. I'm not in a hurry. This is too important. Matthew 13. But I want to get you into this so that you can leave today thinking about something. Let God's work on you. Jesus gathers them together by the sea. And he tells them what we would know as the parable of the sower. He says a sower comes out into his field and he shows some seed. Some of it falls on the road, which is hard. Some of it falls on the wayside. Some of it is thrown out where there's thorns and thistles. And some of it throws, comes on, on good ground. The one that was thrown on the wayside, a bird comes in, takes it away, it eats it, never takes root. The seed that's sown by the side of the road where there is some dirt, it takes root, but it can't get in very deep. And it grows up very quickly, but as soon as the scorching sun comes up, when it gets to the top of the day, it withers up and it dries because it had no root in it. It was there, so it reacts quickly, but it has no root in it. The third is that that's sown in the, in the, among, the, among the thorns and the thistles. And it does have ground there, and there is depth to the soil. We know that because the thorns and the thistles have already dug their roots into it. And so the roots of the seed go down into it, and it grows up, but it can't ever get very far because there, its roots are competing with the roots of the thorns and the thistles, and the thorns and the thistles block the sun out, and so it can't grow for its full maturity and produce fruit. And then the last falls on good soil where there's depth, where there's nutrition, and there's not anything distracting it, and it grows up and produces a harvest 30, 60, and 100-fold. In Luke's account, Mark's account of this, it's very significant. He says, if you can understand this parable, then you can understand every other parable. And he said, I speak to them in parables because it's not been given to some, them to understand, but to be given to you. That sounds strange. But he goes on to explain. He quotes out of Isaiah. He says, which, 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 which fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah that says that they hear, but they don't hear. They see, but they don't see. And it doesn't enter into their understanding, lest I should heal them, make them whole. But then he goes on to explain to his church what he means. And he ends that first discussion with these words. It's in verse 9. He who has ears to hear, 
let him hear. Now, you've heard me talk about this before, because if we were to turn over to Revelation, where Jesus has an address, a message, to each of these seven churches in Asia Minor, and we've talked about it last week, it's a different message to each church, which means he knows each church where it is, and he has something to say to the church, but he ends each of them by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This whole parable is about hearing, about the Word of God getting sown into us, spoken to us. See, when the Word of God's spoken to you, it's sown. But what it's able to do in you determines how well you hear. Same seed, same, opportun- same potential for growth, all the, f- all the ultimate fruit... All the wheat, all the harvest that's potential is in each one of those seeds. But whether it can be produced depends on what kind of ears, what kind of soil, what kind of heart it's come on. Which is why he says at the beginning of his explanation, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And that's why God spoke to Ezekiel and says the first thing to say to the bones, hear the word of the Lord. And so the question we're going to leave ourselves with today, that God's leaving us with, do I have ears to hear? Am I willing to hear what God is saying to us? Or am I going to block it out by saying, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about? No, I don't. But it's the word of the Lord we want to hear. Oh, but I'm already doing that. See, that's what the Pharisees were. We don't need this because we're already doing it. We know where we are because we perform all the things we know we're supposed to perform. Therefore, we don't need to hear you. We don't need to listen to you. And Jesus says, the revelation has not been intended to be given to them because they won't hear it. We need to search our hearts and ask ourselves, am I willing to hear what God has to say to me? I'm going to hear it eventually when I stand in front of Him. I'd rather hear it now when I can get with the program. Then hear it later, and what follows is that, why didn't you do it? He's not going to hurt us. This, this vision is full of hope and promise. But only, this is why we're spending this time on it, only to the extent that we have ears to hear what God's saying to us. Sometimes we close our ears because we don't want to hear. We're afraid of what it might be. God loves you. He's not going to hurt you. He's a loving Father. But he wants to get us where he needs us to be and where we need to be. It's really growing up spiritually. This whole, this whole parable, this whole story of the dry bones is growing up spiritually and revival. That's all because we're going to see that as we get into this. Faith Christian Center, do we have ears to hear? Don't answer quickly. If you answer quickly, you didn't hear it. You didn't hear the significance of the question because it's God asking us. God asking us. And God's speaking to us this morning saying, Faith Christian Center, hear, hear. Not just listen to, hear. Listen implies the sound verberated off your eardrums and you could repeat back what you just heard. That's listening. But the Greek word for hear is a kuo. And it means two things together. It means understanding what's said and listening with the intention of doing what you hear. It's listening with the intention of doing what you hear. God said to Ezekiel, speak to the bones and tell them, hear the word of the Lord. We'll pick up here next week. Father, we thank you this morning that you love us so much that you're speaking to us. I know in my life the difficult times is when I'm not hearing you. But Lord, no matter what it is you're saying to us, I want to hear your voice. 
We desperately need to see where we are. We desperately need to hear the word of the Lord. And I pray, Father, and I've been praying, and I know there are others, that you would open our ears to hear, open our eyes to see. Father, in this week that lies ahead, may the spirit of the living God inside of us begin to work in our hearts to soften us, to help us to see whatever the hindrance is that would hinder us from hearing the word of the Lord. May take authority over spiritual forces that the word of God says are out there that would distract us, that would deceive us, that would, that would weaken us so that we would not hear the word of the Lord that he's speaking to us. In Jesus' name.